Welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by a group of fabulous supply chain professionals who are going to open up today and share their personal stories with us. Their experiences of being a woman, a person of color, an indigenous person, and they're going to really shine a light for us on how those formative experiences have impacted their lives and careers and made them into the person that they are today. So welcome to Devin, Shay, Mike, Veda, and Addie. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, let's get started with some introductions. So can each of you tell me who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? I'm going to start with you, Devin. Sure. My name is Devin Fiddler. I'm the owner and CEO of She Native Goods. I also identify as being an entrepreneur, a Cree woman. Um, I also identify as being Indigenous from the Waterhen Lake First Nation. I'm a mother of two boys and I identify as she and her. I'm also an interim general manager for the Waterhen Lake First Nation Development Corp. And I have a passion for entrepreneurship, community and economic development. And to me, diversity is anything that makes individuals who they are and inclusion means acceptance. So understanding that people are, are different, come from different values and ideas. And um, so it's about really trying to understand and accommodate uh, the uniqueness and differences of all people. I love that. I just got goosebumps. And I love the fact that you went diversity and inclusion and you separated the two. Shay, over to you. Why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Yes, so my name is Shaylin Dixon. I'm the president and CEO of Allegiant Logistics. We're a premier woman-owned and operated freight brokerage in South Metro Atlanta area. Uh, I'm a freight broker by day, mom at night. I have two of my own and I have four bonus children and five grandchildren. So we have a huge family that I'm grateful for. I would identify as a an African-American woman. Um, and for me, and diversity and inclusion is more than a catchphrase. It's more than a cliche word that we use. To me, it's direct action, direct opportunities for people that look like me. And once you have those opportunities and programs and um, opportunities, it's feeling accepted and heard in that, in that space. So that's me in a nutshell. And that's what diversity and inclusion is for me. I love that. What's bonus children? So bonus children are my husband's children that are my children. I didn't birth them, but they were a bonus to me. They add so much value to my life and um, they gave me all of my grandchildren. So we have a huge family and I, I love it. I come from a very small family. So I love being a part of a huge family, our blended family. Yes, I love that. I love that. <laughs> and thanks so much for sharing that. Mike. Yes. Over to you, the only guy on our panel today. Tell us who you are, what you do, how do you identify, and what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Yeah, so thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Mike Cachu. I uh, identify as a, a father and a husband. Uh, I identify as an entrepreneur as well. Uh, and I, uh, I use pronouns uh, he and him. Um, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a student of the game and I attempt to learn it every day. 
uh, around uh, supply chain and procurement and sourcing and optimization of operations of companies. Um, and supply diversity inclusion for me uh, is all around having a well-orchestrated perspective. Um, for me, I'm very interested in having a diversified uh, group of people around me so that I understand all different types of opinions and positions and different um, uh, views on topics and anything associated with that. Uh, and my goal is always to take in as much as I can from as many different perspectives. So for me, diversity inclusion is all about uh, creating a community of perspectives that I can grow and learn from. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Veta, it is late for you and I appreciate you for joining us today. Um, why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Yeah, of course, Sarah. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me. Um, my name is Svete. I'm a former journalist who got into the world of startups and tech um, as a first employee at a prop tech startup. Uh, and after that, went into venture capital. Right now, I'm currently doing an investment banking um, analyst uh, role and um, hoping that the skill that would actually help uh, develop and further expand on the financial skills that would ultimately make me a better uh, venture investor. Um, and I think uh, when you said about identifying, it's a very um, interesting, uh, it's a very interesting way to put it. And so for me, I would identify as um, even uh, from um, a woman that is Caucasian, but also it is from Eastern Europe. So I think that is um, a trait and a characteristic. Uh, and in terms of um, what um, I do on the side, so I run a project called Ecosystem, and this is to um, aimed to democratize access to the venture industry and also help to break the um, kind of the existing networks and open up the venture industry to um, outsiders, so well, less network founders and junior VCs. Uh, and what diversity and inclusion means to me, um, I did want to uh, quote a specific quote that I found in the book. So um, diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusion is having a voice and belonging is having that voice be heard. Uh, and I think that's a great summary and looking forward to the conversation. Yes, me too. And you know, as well as I do that uh, VCs, especially for women in this industry, um, definitely needs to be something that we are, we are pushing for. And so love to see that that's what you're doing. Last, but definitely not least is Addie. Welcome to Blended. I am so excited to have you here. Um, tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Thank you. My name is Adiola Olubamiji. I go by Adi. I am a technologist and um, I also am the founder of STEM Up Foundation, a Canadian non-for-profit that serves the um, GTA, Greater Toronto area. And we focus on mentoring and also helping young people get into STEM education. So I love 3D printing. This is what I got my PhD on and this is what I have done for the last 10 to 12 years. And I am passionate about the future of work, Industry 4.0, including optimizing supply chain. Um, what, is, uh, what do I identify as? I identify as a Black woman, minority. I identify as a female. So she and I are my pronouns. I am originally Nigerian, so I identify as an African. I have lived in a couple of countries, Finland and, and Canada. I now live in the US, so I'm a global citizen. 
maybe that to keep in mind. What does diversity mean to me? Representation, being able to have a seat at the table and also just making that conscious effort to ensure that there is variety in terms of social class race and really getting more people in there that doesn't look like you, making that conscious effort to look around you. So to me, diversity doesn't mean bring, bring black people. It means finding those people who don't look like you, including black people looking at how do I expand my circle beyond those that look like me. Inclusion to me means really being able to permit somebody else to be included. Being included means to listen to them, to take their perspective serious, to think about what they need and how can they be served better. So just not prioritizing yourself could be the word for diversity and inclusion for me. Thank you. Wow. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, so many really, really great definitions of what diversity and inclusion means. And it just goes to show that blended and diversity inclusion is all about different perspectives. And we all have different perspectives around those words. So I appreciate you all for sharing that. So Devin, I'm going to start with you because this episode is all about stories and impact. And so can you tell us about your experience as an Indigenous woman? You are the first Indigenous person on this on this show. And I'm super excited and glad that you're here, um, that you can share with us. And I'd love to encourage anybody else who's Indigenous uh, to reach out to me to be on the show. Um, the impact that those experiences have had on you, because I know, you know, it was a bit of a negative picture for you, I think, early on. So talk to us a little bit about that. What have you been, what have you experienced? Sure. Um, so this is kind of perfect because it's really about um, kind of how my own story and experiences had created my wife for my company. And, and it was really the inspiration behind She Native. So I'll take you back to kind of a little bit about my own childhood experiences and kind of the um, broad societal issues of Indigenous women and girls. So broadly, Indigenous women are one of the most disadvantaged women in Canada. So we're um, five times more likely to go missing and to be murdered. Um, we're 3% of the Canadian population, yet 30% of the Canadian prison population. The stats might be a little bit different now <laughs> from when I first heard those stats. Um, so just a little bit of background before I even talk about my own story. Um, so I'm also university educated. I have a background in Aboriginal public administration where I studied um, Indigenous studies, um, Native studies at the time it was called. And I really focused on issues surrounding Indigenous women and girls. And that's why I'm so passionate about um, the, about elevating and empowering Indigenous women and, girl, and girls in my company. So it's not only that, that that's really kind of driven me to kind of where I am right now. It's more about like my own personal and um, experiences growing up. So from my point of view, um, I, I, I think that I 
generally lived what a typical Indigenous woman um, would live, I guess. But all stories are a little bit different. So it's very common for Indigenous women to experience certain traumas within childhood and within um, within their teenage experiences. So in my own experience, um, I grew up both on and off reserve. Um, I grew up with a mother and a father who I love very much. Um, my mother is my role model, but um, early on in, our in my childhood, I, I remember um, experiencing um, and seeing domestic violence in, in our home. And so it's experiences like that that are pretty common and it all kind of stems from um, traumatic, deep rooted traumatic experiences uh, stemming from the from residential schools. Um, so both of my parents are residential school survivors as well as my grandparents. And so it just kind of goes to show the trauma experienced by my um, parents and kind of how um, it has, has affected how we were raised as children, right? So um, how I would like to ex explain my upbringing is more, I have experienced that intergenerational trauma that my parents have kind of gone through. So they've, they've experienced um, different traumas and so has, have our grandparents. So um, the types of traumas that our grandparents have experienced are everything from um, physical and sexual abuse um, as children. And this kind of has evolved into what some of my experiences have been as a child. And also growing up as a young Indigenous woman. Um, so I guess like, the experiences that I, I want to kind of bring up is, is those like deep um, traumatic experiences that people don't really necessarily like to talk about, but this is a reality for a lot of Indigenous women. And this is why I, I talk about it. And so um, my intention when starting my company was to my intention of starting my company is to help elevate Indigenous women to get, not to get necessarily out of those traumas, but to inspire and, and to show how um, we can create our own realities. Um, so I'm kind of doing that through my company, but the idea too is to help um, give indig young Indigenous women like myself who were kind of like deep into um, their own traumatic experiences. Not only have I experienced things as a child, but as a teenager, um, I've, I've experienced um, certain, I guess, kind of, uh, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but. <laughs> it's okay. Um, um, being taken advantage of as a, mm -hmm. as a young teenager. And also I've experienced domestic violence as a young, a young woman as I was going into university. And so it's just to really give you kind of that context of, of what a typical indigenous woman faces. Um, so like, and I, 
Yeah, I think I think you you know, and I want to say thank you to you for being very honest and talking about this because, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on this show and talk about the stories and the impacts that it's not only making on your life, but also on your family's life. But the fact that you are inspiring the next generation and changing the narrative Mm-hmm. one step at a time, right? This is baby steps. This is something that is ingrained and has been around for a very long time, but you are being the change that you want to see. And, you know, I, I just, I just want to say thank you for you for sharing that because it's not, it's not easy, you know, and I know what a lot of indigenous women and people go have gone through and are still going through and, and changes do need to be made. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Now I'm going to send it over to Shay, because I want you to tell us a little bit about your story as well. What Tell us the story and the impact that it's had on your life and your career. Yes. So my story is very different. I grew up in the 80s. I was born in the 80s in um, outside of Pittsburgh, PA, like near Erie. I was actually born like on Lake Erie. That's like what everybody says. Um, my birth mother and father, my birth father was in the military and he had just came back from war and he had um, some PTSD. So he had a drug addiction problem. And my mother had at the time, um, healthcare was a lot different than it is now. And a lot of black women went undiagnosed. So she had Crohn's disease and didn't know it. And she was battling through that um, by uh, using drugs. So I was taken out of the home when I was six years old and I went into foster care um, where I was in foster care for about four years. And I experienced a lot of trauma. Um, I've always been a very strong person, but as an adult, you know, dealing through these things, starting a business really will expose a lot of the trauma that you have. People don't always talk about that, but um, a lot of the trauma that I experienced, I didn't realize um, had developed me into the woman I was. And so I had to unlearn a few things and kind of go back and and heal those places so that I could show up better in my business um, and as an entrepreneur. I was adopted at the age of nine. Um, my brother and I were actually adopted together, which is very rare. They normally separate you. We moved outside of uh, Philadelphia's uh, suburbs near Villanova. So it's a rags to riches story, really. I went from living in you know, section eight housing. Like I remember walking in the playground and getting glass stuck in my foot. That was like a reality then um, to living in multi-million dollar homes. I grew up in a very affluent area. I went to one of the best high schools in, in the US. Um, and we were adopted uh, by a transracial couple, which both of my parents are white. Both of my my brother and myself are black, obviously. Um, I know you can't see me listening to this, but we're both black. And so that came along with so many other issues that a lot of people don't understand when it comes to adoption, especially when you're adopting someone outside of your race. So I tell everyone, um, I have the best of both worlds. I really understand now, as an adult, I've been able to understand uh, and kind of find my identity. But those early childhood things, um, going through the foster care system, the child welfare system, experiencing a lot of trauma, being adopted and being adopted and then not seeing anyone that looks like you. None of my family looks like me. 
no one I went to school with, I think in my graduating class, there was maybe like four or five black people. You know, I grew up in an area where none of my neighbors were black and it was a very different experience and it shaped me. Um, and some of the skill sets I have, I will say that it's because of that. Um, and then other things like not knowing who I was or not feeling like I fit in, those things I had to overcome. So now in my career, I really have a, a unique perspective. So working in logistics and working on the trucking side and on the brokerage side, I've been able to work in leadership roles where other women who look like me were never able to have a seat at that table um, because I understand um, both sides, um, you know, and I'm able to kind of be like a chameleon. So I will say that that has helped me um, branch and kind of, uh, you know, do what I need to do to, you know, um, navigate that in business, um, especially when I'm at a table when I'm the only black woman. Uh, but that's a little bit about my experience and how it's kind of shaped me and who I am today. Thank you. Thank you for sharing so candidly your story. And I noticed when you were talking about your trauma translating into your entrepreneurial life, that Devin was nodding her head. So I just, before we get to Mike, I just want to take it back to Devin and ask you if there's anything that you want to contribute to that. Um, you know, having some of the, the traumas that you've gone through and how did that translate into yourself as an entrepreneur? Did you have, I'm, I'm assuming you would have some work to do. Yeah, I think um, I really related to everything that you were saying because um, I've had to go through the exact same things that you have um, working through my traumas and, and it did take me quite a bit of years and to, to be honest I'm probably still working through some of those traumas mm -hmm. and um, I haven't realized that until maybe just last year that I do need to kind of go back and work on a lot of the things that instead of avoiding the traumas that I've had um, I think over the years I've just kind of glossed over some of the traumas and I would skip that part all the time. Um, I wouldn't want to talk about the issues. I wouldn't want to um, bring up the negative side of my story. And that's not what I like to focus on. I, I like to focus on changing the narrative and, and how you can change the narrative, but it's so true. You do have to go back to work on yourself and to work on um, your traumas to, to be able to um, make, um, the moves that you need to in your business, because it does have a huge impact on what you can do as an entrepreneur when yeah. you're not dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much, Devin. Mike, I'm going to go over to you. What's your story? I mean, you're the, you're the male in the room. You're the Caucasian male yeah, in the room. I'm, I'm sure. Uh... And you've been in the industry for a long time, right? And so I want to know, you know, what's the journey that's made you the man that you are today? What have you seen in your journey and how have you seen a bit of a change? Because I'm sure that there's been a change since you entered the workforce to now. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I have to be honest with you. I, um, we, we've done a lot of work together, you and I, Sarah, and, and this is, this is really powerful stuff for me. I'm, I'm, I applaud all of you ladies, um, such strong women. I mean, you just, you're amazing at what you do. And you, and then the fact that you're willing to open up and talk a little bit about you, it makes, 
gives so much depth to that. I mean, I just met you literally 15 minutes ago and I feel so much more connected with you because of your stories and, uh, and thank you for sharing. I mean, not everybody does that, right? Uh, a lot of people, they put up barriers to that. And, uh, and, and I, I can understand completely. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about my story as well uh, about barriers and things like that. But, um, so I, I uh, yeah, my story is I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I grew up uh, in a very violent uh, household with my parents. Uh, and by the age of seven, they were divorced. And in 1977, I was one of the only children that I could ever find who actually went to live with their father versus their mother in 1977. Wow. Uh, I think it was probably because my dad worked in the court system and knew a bunch of judges and my poor mother didn't have a chance. Mm. Um, so I, uh, I went through uh, my childhood with, uh, with, with my dad raising me as a solo parent. Uh, my dad was in the court system, as I mentioned, and he was a juvenile probation officer. And, they were, and that was front and center in my life from day one. Uh, and my dad had a lot of um, uh, vices and because of that, we got evicted a bunch of times and didn't have a bunch of money. And I grew up pretty, pretty um, humble, I guess is the right word. But uh, I also grew up with uh, kids on my couch in the morning when I would wake up who were uh, juvenile delinquency kids who were, we were taking up to a camp in Maine or we were taking to uh, a juvenile delinquency center in upstate New York or things like that. So. I got very, very familiar with uh, a lot of what happens in the world and got a lot of exposure to it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's probably one of the best things I can take away from my childhood is the fact that I saw, uh, for, for all of his faults, I saw somebody who really, really tried to help kids. Um, and I can remember one time asking him why he did what he did, which is, you know, trying to help children. And he said, if I can help one kid a year, you know, there's so many kids that revert back juvenile delinquency and they go back into the system. And he said, if I can help one kid not go back in, then I've done my work, you know? Um, and, and that kind of instilled in me an, an interest and a desire to uh, help people. Um, and, then, uh, and then over the years, I kind of clawed my way up. I was an average student at best. I've got a degree in communications. I get no business being a former chief procurement officer. Uh, I, I don't have a master's degree. I've never received a certification in the business uh, or the industry. Um, I just uh, was a fighter from, I had to pay for college and put myself on the, on, the, on the waterfront growing up in Massachusetts. I was in the seafood business and on the waterfront working three or four different jobs and um, you know, it's a struggle. You gotta, you gotta want to kick, claw, and scratch through it. And you gotta, I, I think the folks that uh, are, it's, I think the folks that are willing to expose their, their backgrounds and, and really do kind of a deep search into themselves to figure out where they came from. Ultimately, at some point you go, oh, that, now I understand where I am today. Um, and, and I know, I know for a long time, I mean, my, my craft was in procurement and sourcing. I love the art of, of sourcing. I don't know if I'm a professional buyer or what. Um, I think that a very well orchestrated contract is almost as beautiful as the Mona Lisa um, for me. I don't know why, but it is. 
And, uh, and I love building teams and I love helping people build teams and watching people develop inside of my teams has been amazing. Um, my teams for some other reason, even though I know now from my community that 70% of the people in our industry are male and 30% are female, my teams tended to be the complete opposite of that. Um, I had 70% women and 30% men in my teams. I don't know why, but it's just worked out that way uh, over the years. And we had great success and great mentorship. And I was always happy when somebody said, hey, Mike, I have to leave. I got a really great opportunity to go work at X, Y, and Z because I knew I had done my part to position them well for the world um, and, still, and still talk to them to this day. So, um, and I think that all kind of wrapped up into the ability for me to leave the industry and start a community where now I'm building something um, for an entire, I'm trying to build something for an entire industry now, right? Whether that's through salary and compensation surveys, whether that's through scholarship funds, whether that's through open private communities where everybody can collaborate and learn and mentor each other. Um, and it just, I just didn't think I could help enough people one-on-one. -on -one, so I went out and tried to build a community that I could help masses of people. And I think Addie said that she, her, her organization has affected 5,000 folks, right? So far impacted 5,000 people. I mean, you say that, and you say, hey, we've I've created an organization that's a, that's impacted 5,000 people, and you kind of skipped over that. And and I'm here to tell you that is no small feat. Impacting 5,000 people is an immense feat. Uh, and I'm just kind of honored to be on the stage with the rest of you to be completely candid. So so thanks. That's that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, and thank you. And I think you know. We don't get to hear your backstory very often. We hear about yeah. what you're doing right now. And I'm just grateful for you to be part of this today and talk very openly about your background. And I think you talking about your dad and how he helped people and, and how you're translating that on your own into in, in a variety of different ways into our community is, is great. So Addie, I'm gonna send it over to you. Um, you work in manufacturing. You have experience across biomedical, aerospace, automotive. And if anybody was to ask, like, the, like those are really male-dominated areas, right? And I think you've pretty much covered all of them <laughs> with the biomedical, aerospace, automotive, et cetera, et cetera. So as a woman and a woman of color, what has your experience been like over the course of your career so far? Oh, God, you don't want me to talk about my story? I do. I want you to talk about your story and I want to talk to you. I want you to talk to us about your story and your career as well. Yes. Thank you, Mike, for, for that. And uh, I'm, I, I frequently traveled to Massachusetts, maybe post COVID. I get an opportunity to meet you. I, I'd love to buy a glass of wine and hear more about your story. Awesome. Thank you. So um, I, I like as I mentioned before, I'm originally Nigerian. I grew up in Ibadan, Nigeria. So it's a very small city. And uh, I'll tell you a bit about my upbringing, which is far different from all of you. Both of my parents had no education. They were very passionate about education, despite that fact. When I was nine, I started selling pepper. My mom, would, uh, she, she, was a, she was a farmer. She would go out there. She'd get all those items because uh, she needed to take care of us. And we were five kids, and my dad and her, and her were trying to raise us. At nine, I started selling those pepper because that was the only way I could get my tuition paid. 
So when I was a, a young girl, I had a little piggy bank where I have to save my money that I made every day. And uh, when it's time to pay my tuition, I'll break the piggy bank, get my money out and take it to school and pay my tuition. And I remember being sent back home a couple of times because my money wasn't complete for school or and I have to go back and really intensify my hawking and selling trade. Uh, when I was 10 on the wall of our living room, I found my father's cousin, a professor of nuclear physics. At that time, he lived in the U.S. And I had another uncle who is uh, a clinical professor who was uh, also living in the U.S. My dad placed the pictures on the wall of our living room in the slum where we lived. And every time he got an opportunity, he would regale us with story about those people and told us what was possible. Why? Because on our streets, we had uh, people who were prostitutes. We had some boys who had become gang stars because that was the only way to really make hands meet. But my dad was always saying, look at your uncles. If you, if you really uh, try to study, you probably will end up in the US. So when I was 10, I told my dad, I'm also gonna get a PhD in physics, just like my uncle, so you could stop talking about it. And everyone laughed and I meant it. I meant that I was gonna get a PhD in physics. So I started burning like candles, after hawking my pepper, I would go home and study every night until 1 a.m. And my mom would scold me because we didn't have electricity all the time. And she would say, you've, you've finished all the kerosene. So what I was supposed to cook with? But I just kept going. And uh, I actually obtained my first degree in physics. And after that point, I said I wasn't going to make an atomic bomb like my uncle, that I wanted to make something else. And then I learned about medical physics. At that time, we didn't really have biomedical engineering in Nigeria, so I had to look outside, and I ended up in Finland for my master's degree. I went to Finland with 700 euros. I didn't know anybody. It was free tuition, but they speak a different language, and I didn't have a house. And I was ready to just go out there and make my dreams come true. So I went there. I got a cleaning job. I started working part-time and going to school. And a couple of years later, I could speak Finnish. I obtained a master's degree. And the, the dream was to go to the U.S. So I started and to get a PhD. Immediately after my master's degree, I started applying everywhere. Whoever would give me a scholarship to get a PhD. And I ended up in Canada. So from Finland, I made my way to Canada. And I remember it's a coming down at Pearson Airport and saying, oh, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm ready to take it. And headed to Saskatchewan and was ready to really get a PhD, as I promised my parents. And four years later, I became the first Black person to get a PhD in biomedical engineering. And I felt like, yes, I'm ready to take on the world. What now? I've, I've gotten the PhD. My major was engineering physics, by the way. And I felt like I, I did what I said I was going to do as a kid. And before I continue, there's a lesson there that I want you to know that if a kid have a vision, don't laugh at it. Sometimes they mean it. Sometimes they just want you to encourage them. My parents didn't know. They didn't know I meant it. They laughed and uh, I meant it. So every day I worked towards it. And I kept looking at the picture on the wall of our living room whenever I got discouraged. And thank God that picture didn't move. I, I was looking at the picture and remembering that I could do that. And after the PhD, what was I supposed to pursue next? I didn't have anything pursued to pursue anymore. Then I realized that I said I was going to end up in the US. So one more thing to do. I started, uh, so right after university, I, my, my PhD was focused on biomedical applications. And then I moved to do 3D printing in aerospace. 
I want to say this, that since I started my career, everywhere I go, I was always the only woman and only black person. And there was never anybody that looked like me. And so uh, I became comfortable with that early on in my life. I had three brothers. They beat the crap out of me. I mean that. They bit me. Like I have scars on my body. They're trying to make me strong. And in my house, there was no, there was no opportunity to cry because we, we all just didn't have. So every, there was no reason to cry. So you just have to go through life knowing that you have to just be strong at every time. Is that traumatic? Absolutely. It left me damaged. It left me damaged. I couldn't get in a relationship properly. I just was breaking up with everybody because I couldn't afford to not get this right. If I don't get it right, I'm going to fail. I don't have family here. So every day I wake up knowing fully well that I have to have a plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. I was so uptight because that was the only way. I moved to Canada, finished a PhD, got into aerospace, realized I'm the only person here who have this accent, who's black, who's female. So every day I am representing too many things. And, and that continued to make me to be uptight. Well, I did a couple of years there, and then I said I wanted to try 3D printing in automotive. So I moved to the US and said, that's, that's actually where I said I wanted to go. I did a couple of years in automotive. Automotive is the hardest industry to be in. Absolutely, I would say this, I'm telling you, it's hard. It's hard. It is hold. Because it is hold, acceptance of something new such as 3D printing is hard. People will ask you, why should we, why should we change what is now broken? If we've been doing automotive for 100 years or more and it works, why should we introduce 3D printing? I guess who's leading it? A black girl with an accent. But I feel like all of those at some point, I needed to take a step back and ask myself, how do I be, become a better convincer? Maybe I'm carrying too much baggage from my past. Also with all of these things that I have to prove to people. So at some point I needed to find myself a good balance between work and life and my past and really trying to grow a family. And yes, where I came from, going for therapy was not something that was uh, something that everybody liked. When you say you're doing therapy, everyone's like, what the hell, therapy? You're too young to be doing therapy and you shouldn't talk about it. But I realized I needed to do that. I needed to help myself get that balance because that's the only way I could bring my best to a relationship, to work and really enjoy life. So I did a couple of years in automotive and I'm now in uh, OEM. I work for an OEM that makes 3D printers. Um, sometimes I sit down and I wonder, how old are you? Why have you gone through all of these things? But I, I, it took me back to my past. When I woke up every day as a child, there was no excuse to fail because I wanted to be better than, I, than my parents. I didn't want to end up like them. I loved them. They were hardworking but I wanted to work a little different from them. I wanted to work smart. And that kept me chasing, chasing my dreams around different countries, around different places. And yeah, today I'm happy that I've been to a couple of therapy sessions, better person. And uh, when you talk diversity and inclusion, I tell people, people like me bring multiple experience from different places. Having lived in Finland, speak Finnish, have all this education, lived in Africa, lived in Canada, and I live here. You will only have a better person when you hire someone like me. You will only have a better company 
when you halal people like me, because what we bring to the table is all of this rounded experience, such as everyone here is sharing. All of this form us to be better at thinking, delivering, holding on to something, and really getting it done. That's my story on manufacturing. Um, how do I feel in these spaces that are oftentimes male-dominated? I feel like I represent you. I represent every female out there. So I, I, I do not take that for granted. So I know I have to bring my hate game. And I also feel like I'm an experience waiting for people to learn about how women actually deliver. So when you put something in my hand, I want to do it better than every other guy that has done it. Because I want you to know that a woman don't fail. We deliver exceptionally. Does that keep me up at night? Yes. Is it a good thing? Mm -hmm. I do it because of everybody else that I, rec I really represent. Thank you. Awesome. Adi. That was quite the story. And I'm so glad that you shared that with us. I mean, I've been to Helsinki. I don't know where you lived in Finland, but Helsinki is one of my favorite places. I love that you talk about going to a therapist, even though it's not the thing that you grew up with. And it's something that could have ostracized you from the rest of your family, right? Because it's not something that is necessarily accepted. I, I truly believe in therapy and have always had a therapist. And I think, you know, it can do us a world of good, but, but your story um, is absolutely incredible. And the weight, I can just feel the weight from you and what you're saying and how you've carried this for so long. And I, I think that it must be so exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just one word. Yeah. All right. Veta, last but not least, why don't you tell us about your story? Um, you are, I believe you're in London right now, or you're not at this very moment, but I think you live in London. You're not from England originally. So tell us your story. Share with us some of the experiences that you've gone through in your life and how have they framed you as a woman? How have they framed your career? What does that look like? Thanks, Sarah. And to be fair, I feel very uh, honored to be on the same stage uh, with you ladies uh, and with you, Mike. It's, um, it's great to hear about your experiences and how you've overcome uh, certain difficulties. Uh, from my side, uh, actually hearing that, I understand that, um, you know, perhaps the perspective that everyone has uh, is different and every, uh, everyone grows up with a certain idea, but you never really understand what is going on, for example, on the house next to you or uh, in the place in the country next to you. And I think uh, from my uh, from my side, uh, I had actually a very happy um, childhood um, and very um, loving parents that, um, you know, were super supportive. I think to the point of even perhaps being too supportive, whereas you, you don't have the opportunity to uh, perhaps even, uh, you know, uh, make um, make an own um, choice sometimes. So, for example, my mom, I love her a lot, but um, yeah, that's something that I've noticed that uh, 
in Bulgaria or I think in many Eastern European countries, uh, it is uh, this type of a society where the family is really, really um, connected and, um, you know, looks after the children uh, to the point of, you know, not letting them make their own uh, choices uh, in, in many ways. Uh, so I think that uh, that, uh, that has been something uh, perhaps uh, during the start of my um, the start of my childhood. And after that, um, I moved to Italy at a very I guess, relatively young age. So um, I spent some time there uh, in high school. So it was all about, you know, adapting to a new country, adapting to a new environment. I, I feel um, that it has been a great experience uh, being in an international um, culture at such a young age because it opened my perspective. It showed me that there are so many, um, you know, different uh, different types of cultures, different, um, uh, different uh, customs and um, that was super beneficial to see it at a young age uh, because it helped me to want to live abroad, to want to uh, be in a place that is uh, truly multicultural. Uh, and also uh, taught me how to adapt, right? Because I was 13, I didn't know Italian. Uh, I had to move to a completely um, yeah, new country, new uh, new environment, whereas everyone else, um, you know, I spoke English, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't the only language that you needed living there um, and I think going back to um, going back after to Bulgaria going back to high school it just um, show, it just gave me a different uh, perspective uh, and I think uh, not having done that um, yeah I, I don't think that I would have <laughs> moved uh, to a different country and uh, yeah uh, went on uh, about my life in that way but also um, having um, having moved several countries, I guess, starting over from scratch, building a network. Uh, and I went when I went to university uh, in London, I didn't know anyone uh, there. So it was all about starting over, starting new. Uh, it was very much against my, for example, mom, a mother's um, decision and uh, going to university abroad. But uh, it also very much I was uh, because I had made this choice I was kind of alone right it was <laughs> it was against that so I couldn't really go back home I had to make it I had to um, you know build uh, I do say about network but it is building out uh, opportunities for uh, progressing whether it's you know uh, knowing uh, you know it's even about uh, certain industry right it's about understanding what is the opportunity there i think that's something that i'm very passionate about because uh what i see as a big problem uh not only in bulgaria but in many countries is the lack of understanding within the younger generation at what they can achieve and who they can be so for example very recently there was there was a case whereas one female founder that i very much admire um called whitney wolford she took her pump, uh, company public um in the US. She became the 22nd person, 22nd uh, female founder to take her company public. Uh, and of course, that was not even, you know, publicly shared in the local media. So how could young uh, women know that this, this is something that, you know, is actually uh, a very, very uh, real opportunity and they could be entrepreneurs and they could um, do um, successes like this or similar. Uh, and I think having a younger sister as well is what motivates me and what drives me uh, to move forward and to be able to, uh, you know, show her <laughs> all this opportunity that technology can uh, actually give uh, her and many uh, other girls like her. And from my perspective, um, I think uh, 
we all talked about the different ways of you know stereotyping or the different um, kind of uh, boundaries that uh, either we are put either we put ourselves or we are put because of our social group or um, because of the way we look um, and I think that is just uh, certain unconscious biases that people project towards you it doesn't matter you know how you look but there are certain um, stereotypes that people uh, will will have for you and there is really uh, in a lot of uh, environments uh, you do have to uh, fight kind of two battles so one is uh, yeah to prove yourself uh, that you could do what you can and that's your skill set and the other is that you have to disprove the stereotype <laughs> that is associated with your um, group as a minority so for example yes uh, I am a white woman so for, so perhaps in some ways I was not always um, in such a minority uh, but also uh, you know, being young, not being, uh, you know, not, 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 um, I think uh, being young is one, uh, uh, one thing that could be a benefit <laughs> and a negative uh, as well. Uh, and also uh, yeah, being, uh, being a woman too uh, is something that uh, we, uh, we all have to, we all have to learn how to, uh, how to behave, I think, and how to, um, and how to, Assert, I think the unconscious, the unconscious questions or the unconscious uh, uh, activities that could happen uh, in certain in certain situations and how to address them and what to do, uh, it just comes with experience. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, it will only happen by talking about it. And I think on the inclusion uh, and the, on the diversity um, question that you asked earlier, yes, right now diversity is on top of everyone's agenda and uh, on many organizations, everyone wants to show that they really are, um, first of all, up, uh, implementing up policies and practices that reflect because you cannot really have a service or you cannot really have a product and for this product if it is to serve the entire population it has to be also made or produced by this uh, this entire population right because otherwise it would not uh, serve its purpose so i think uh, from we are going into a, a change uh, within many industries i've only spent a little bit of time in supply chain from a vc perspective but uh, there is definitely a change and there is a drive towards that we are not there yet uh, but it's also uh, an opportunity to remind uh, remind ourselves and to remember that it's not only it's not only about um you know filling out quotas or uh checking boxes and creating this uh, kind of diverse workforce but it's also about making sure that people do feel like they belong there and they feel that their voice is heard and they feel that they can meaningfully contribute to um to this environment uh and also to create certain uh, I think team culture is super important. So in any organization, team culture would be uh, vital to whether, uh, you know, either a product will get developed or whether the company will um, produce uh, this type of innovation that we're talking about that diversity could bring. Absolutely. Shay, I see you're nodding your head. I think you want to jump in here on some of the stuff that Veta is saying. Well, uh, you know, the thing that really resonated with me is, about young people, especially minorities, just not understanding the power that they have, the opportunity that they have. And I believe a lot of us, we came out on the other side, we defied the odds, right? Because we had in, I know for me personally, in my mind, I was made up, like, like Addie said, I was 
I didn't have a picture hanging on the wall, but that was literally, I knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish and who I didn't want to be. And I think that a lot of times young people don't understand. I talk to or hear people say all the time they want to go into supply chain, they want to go in tech and they're like, I'm not going to be able to get funding. That's just right out the bat. I'm not going to be able to get funding. Oh, I can't pay for school to, you know, I, I me, we do a lot of uh, aerospace transportation. So most of the products we move are airplane parts. And most of the time when we have the Girl Scouts or any other organization that we're meeting with and the young people are talking about their goals, they're like, yeah, but my mom and everyone else said that I can't do that. And so for me, what resonates is everyone up here saying, listen, we've defied the odds and we want other people to be able to defy the odds. So that just really resonates with me. I wish that um, more young people had exposure to everyone at this, at this meeting, at this table, imaginary table, so that they could understand (laughs) that there's opportunity there. There's a lot. Yeah. Then that's why we're doing this, right? Is to have something that everybody can listen to and and gravitate to. Devin or Addie, did you guys want to jump in on that? I just wanted to say, um, I completely agree with you, Shay, everything that you're saying. And um, yeah, like. (laughs) Yes. I think there are two things. First, I want to go back to Virch's point on uh, being young, could be an advantage or a disadvantage. And I, I want to have on that, that sometimes it's a good advantage, especially when we're looking at industry 4.0, jobs of the future. But credibility sometimes it's a problem for young people because someone is looking at your resume and they want somebody with 15 years of experience or 40 years of experience and you don't have that. But you have the knowledge and you are ready to do this and you've, you have some track record because it's not 30 years. Now they pick somebody else. And sometimes I wonder, how do we find those right endorsement or those people who will carry us as mentors, as as sponsors, who would vouch for us, who would say, yes, this person may be young, but I can guarantee you that they can deliver. Especially when we look at where the world is going with Industry 4.0, we don't have a lot of people with 40 years of experience doing that. And we need to move forward as people. How do we allow the young people who have now acquired the knowledge, but they don't have 40 years of experience to lead that? Are companies open to letting young people lead? Are we giving them the benefit of the doubt that this person could be young, but maybe they're ready? Because the future we're pursuing is different from the past. There's not going to be 50 years of experience to pursue that. And now on the other topic, which is very critical in terms of, you know, Hoss just really reflecting back and looking at people can't be what they can't see. And when we look at the people with social media, the right people are not being elevated to your kids. They're not being elevated in those communities. They're only seeing people with 3 million followers and clicking the follow button. And now that's where they get the inspiration from not me and you, because we only have 500 people following us. And then how do I get the right, you know, how do we get the right platform promoting the right role models to young people so they can catch the right inspiration is a thing that our world and and people need to really critically think about. Are big brands really searching for those right role models and positioning them in the right places for young people to catch inspiration or they're after numbers to follow us? and just 
paying people with millions of followership to be promoted while not remembering that these young people need to see a scientist, they need to see an entrepreneur, they need to see somebody uh, like like better, like 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 Sarah, like like they run, like you know they need to see all of us here. They need to see Shay, right? So how do we change that? How do we change who we are giving our young people? How do we encourage brands to promote people with three hundred followers but with the right inspiration? Yeah. Oh, I think so that's true. Go ahead. I just wanted to say that's a really good point, um, Addy, and uh, I think we're seeing uh, also from a tech perspective, we're seeing one unbundling of social media and we're seeing a, a rise in um, much more targeted communities, for example. So that's why you were mentioning about your community, Mike, as well. Uh, and I think it's a different type of validation uh, that people need right now. It's not only about you know all the content, for example, that gets created, but it's all about the curation. So hopefully, you know, we'll move to a point where uh, the micro influencers that are really people who are just like me and you will be given more um, visibility uh, and because they would be more credible to young people. But I think to the point of how do we get, I think it all starts from the family really. Uh, and there has to be this type of, um, this type of in, you know, inspiration that even starts from the family. So for example, if there is no um, entrepreneur in the family, it's great for young people to have access to different types of networks, whether it's you know, people who are coming to school, whether it's uh, you know, having a different type of uh, educational learnings, Everything is one hand away, right? Uh, EdTech has made so, um, the opportunity to learn so much more accessible. So I think uh, if we do focus on that and if we do focus on the young generation, that would be uh, very much a step in the right direction because ultimately those are the people who will be the leaders uh, of tomorrow. Uh, so we, we, do need to, we do need to change those very basics. And I am, perhaps I'm very, you know, I strongly feel about this because for uh, such a big amount of time, um, I've not been home for that long as I was uh, for the past few weeks. So I have seen my sister and I have seen how, for example, she interacts with social media. So from one side, I understand that, um, you know, the group that gets uh, the highest level of adoption of any social media too would be young girls normally. And that's how you know that, for example, one social uh, consumer product could scale and could become very popular. Uh, so I understand that, uh, you know, all of her friends, it's very uh, tight network, but I think it's just putting these people of inspiration there uh, where they are going for information. So kind of breaking this barrier. And also from a tech perspective, all these mentorship programs, I think as a, at a young age, definitely need it when it comes to a little bit of a later stage. And as women are starting businesses, I think uh, that's a problem that I think has been echoed uh, within the VC industry uh, that women are over mentored but under invested in. So I think that's where we need to also bring in the funding, um, the funding kind of opportunities and to make sure that women are within those networks because it also helps to be in the correct uh, networks and to be around entrepreneurs and to know how to um, get the access to funding. Uh, Mike, I saw you nodding your head. I know you want to jump in here. So yeah, I um. You know, Addie said something uh, earlier, or I think maybe it was Shay said something earlier about uh, where I came from, right? And uh, about 100 years ago, I went to college and I took a sociology course um, only because I lived with a juvenile probation officer. I figured I could get an easy A out of it, right? And um, 
and and I took this class and they made us read this book about uh, it's called Mean Streets. I think it was Mean Streets. And uh, it's about two twin brothers who grow up in the slums uh, of Chicago. And uh, they've got a father who is incarcerated and is multiple times incarcerated. And one of the brothers ends up incarcerated just like the father, in fact, in the same prison. And the other one is a big time lawyer in downtown Chicago, right? And they went back. Now these are identical twins that grew up in the same household. And they went and interviewed both of the boys and they said, you know, how did you get to where you are today? And shockingly, they gave exactly the same answer. Look at where I came from. I didn't have any other choice, right? And it comes down to interpretation of your existing environment when you're pretty early on, right? Addie's sitting in that room and somebody's saying to them, you know, somebody's saying to Addie, listen, you're not gonna be able to do that. I mean, that's amazingly powerful stuff. I mean. I went to college because my dad said you should go to community college. And I was like, nope, I'm going to go to the four-year private school in upstate New York and I'm going to pay for it myself, right? It's amazing when somebody says you probably can't do that, that, you know, you either you either fold in the cards or you go, yeah, watch me do that, right? Um, and, and I think that I think that, that whole, the, the story behind the, the two twins of look at where I came from, I didn't really have any choice is, I had to attempt to do better than where I came from because I want the world to be a better place or I'm just a victim of my circumstance and that's where I'm gonna end up, right? And um, so I've been hearing that I have to leave this world a better place than where I started from in all of you ladies today. And it's, it's amazingly uh, inspirational. So again, I will say thank you for allowing me to be on, share this moment with you. Um, but the other thing too, is around mentorship, uh, and one of the things that one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is, I'm in the final stages of discussions with the largest mentor software company in the world, because, again, my goal is to try and affect as many people as possible inside of our industry, and I think uh, in the next couple of weeks we'll have a pretty big announcement. What I'm trying to roll out is the first industry-wide mentor program, regardless of where you are geographically or wherever you are in the world or whatever company you work for, I don't really care. If you're in the supply chain industry or in the procurement industry and you need a mentor or you wanna be a mentor to somebody, Procurement Foundry is gonna become a place where you can go to either get that or give that. Uh, and I'm in negotiations right now with the software firm to be able to allow us to do that. And, um, and that's the whole reason why I did it is because I don't know I mean, all of you ladies could probably be mentors to other folks coming up, whether it's young women or men or just people who are struggling, however, whoever you want to mentor. And I think that if we can get to a place where you all and, and even myself, we can mentor youth and show them that they can actually do these things, you know, um, and, and, and give them somebody in their corner who is now, for me anyway, in my 50s and say, hey, you know what? You can leverage my Rolodex. If you have drive and you're trustworthy, I can pretty much teach you anything else on the planet. I can teach you to be a, a, a I, I, can't, I can't teach you how to throw a baseball 100 miles an hour, but I can teach you how to be a road scholar and a surgeon, right? Um, and, and as long as I can trust you and you have the ambition to do that, 
I can help point you in the direction from my 40 years of experience. And that's really what I think is so important around this sense of the mentorship and building out that community and helping the next generation be better at what we do than what we are. And I think that, I think that they have a lot of opportunity. I mean, they, you know, the ability to be, we did, I grew up in a day when you couldn't talk to a million people at once if you wanted to. And now a million people is rounding Erica Beta what some of it is. And I think, uh, I think probably the, one of the biggest things I heard was, I think we're putting emphasis on the wrong folks, right? All the followers. I mean, I don't see anybody following this year's spelling bee champion, right? Or somebody who just, you know, I mean, I see, you see it every once in a while, but they don't have the followership of everybody else. And, and I think that it's really, really important for us to elevate those folks who are achieving amazing things. And unfortunately, society right now is all about, you know, I want to follow 10 million people who are doing a reveal open for this week's makeup kit. And I'm like, I don't care about the makeup kit. Show me the person who just created the new chemical compound for the makeup. And that's the person I want to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I think those, those conversations are changing, but I want to go back to what Addy said about years of experience. I think we, we need to get away from that. And, and one of the examples that I'll throw out there is around industry conferences, whether that's supply chain, I think just in business in general, you know, we, we talk about wanting to be diverse and we talk about wanting to have diverse speakers and you know i think i think more and more women are making it to the stage but i don't think we're putting enough effort into that from a diversity and inclusion perspective and i think part of that is that we're focused on senior management senior management to c suite and i don't think those are the only people that can contribute something i mean look at what we're doing here today We've just brought a bunch of people together that have never really met before into almost it's over an hour conversation about stories and impacts, what they can bring to the table, what they have brought to the table, what they've done with their lives. And this is what we need to embrace. So we talk about followers, but we also need to talk about title and the focus on title when it comes to industry conferences and things like that. And I think we need to change that. I think we need to change that conversation because there's a lot of people that have a lot of great experiences in their lives that can bring it to industry, no matter where that is, and can bring it to a stage and put it into context around what we're talking about. And like Addy said, some of the conversations we're having is around AI. Well, AI hasn't been around for 40 years. So you're going to put a, a VP on stage, or you're going to put somebody who's worked in the trenches for the last three years on a robot, you know, somebody who's had hands-on versus somebody who's just managed. You know, I think there's a difference in conversation and what we can bring to the table. So I just wanted to share that. And I think around kids, you know, taking conversations like this and sharing them with your kids is super, super important. The content is out there. We just need to be able to get behind it and share these stories and impacts so that we can make a difference. Mike, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think as a guy who just ran a conference three days ago, <laughs> I can I can weigh in on conferences, right? And, and I think and it, it's really interesting. I've had this conversation a number of times. When you can remove the financial element of the sponsorship of the conferences out of the equation, then what's going to happen is you're going to see a change in the dynamics of the people in the conferences on the stages. 
And here's the reason why, because the folks that are sponsoring the conferences from a revenue perspective to pay for the conference typically are sponsors who are trying to sell something and they're trying to sell something to senior decision makers inside of those organizations, which is why you have a lot of senior people on stage, right? Um, but if you take that equation out of the mix and you start to talk about, um, and, and some things actually require knowledge and experience to be able to you know, pull down experiences from other people. So you're learning something faster, but on things like, um, like, like our conference the other day focused on supplier diversity inclusion. And part of the outcome of the whole thing was, and I just sat with my head of event management this morning and I said, we need to do a whole nother conference on diversity and inclusion in the teams of the people who are in supplier diversity inclusion, right? Because I'm dealing all of a sudden, like last week, I got reached out to by the organization for the visually impaired, right? I don't know anybody that has anybody visually impaired inside of their teams. And there's 70% of the folks that are visually impaired or blind in the United States aren't necessarily in, in jobs right now, but they want to be. And it's like, okay, so where do you take this diversity thing? I mean, it, it's, it's, I think you have to focus on the teams as well as the supply. I understand the supplier population. The other thing too is the supplier diversity and inclusion thing that everybody's talking about right now is really, really dangerous in my opinion. It's because everybody wants to be on a soundbite and nobody wants to talk about it, but all the major corporations in the world are really just looking for a soundbite to say, yeah, we dropped some money with a community, right? I mean, it's really bad, right? And if I got to be the guy who calls that out, then I'll call it out, okay? But at the same time, it's some people, there are some folks out there who are like, okay, what's the downstream impact of supplier diversity inclusion? Like, we're going to give you a billion dollars. We're going to take you from a $10 million organization to a $100 million organization. What are you going to do with that $100 million? Did you just put your wife on the corporate paperwork or are you really trying to make a difference here, right? Who did you hire? What's your philanthropic efforts? What did you do downstream to your vendor population to provide me with services? And, it's not, and it just can't be the soundbite of, hey, I'm a Fortune 50 company and I want to spend a billion dollars with African-American-owned businesses this year. That's not going to work long time. And not only that, most African-American-owned businesses right now can't afford to go from $10 million to $100 million because they don't have the financial horsepower behind them to handle $30 million in receivables right now. They're going to get buried. So you have to build it up and it has to be a long-term investment. And I'm trying my best to like wave my hands and go, this is all great, but if it doesn't have long-term effects, the sound bites are going to be over by September. I think like, you're getting an amen by Shay. Shay, did you want to jump in there? Yes. So from the logistics side, transportation, freight brokering, um, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So I often get reached out by all different people who are supplier and diversity inclusion officers for larger companies. I won't say any of the company's names because we're in talks, but I will say this. There are so many barriers after you get on their supplier list or after you reach out and they say, hey, we have a diverse supplier. We've said, you know, you're a part of our supplier network, right? It's this, this gray area that after I become a supplier, now it's like my revenue is under $750,000 a year. So I don't have enough revenue to do business with them. There's no, like you said, there's, there's nothing for sustainability or longevity or the buildup or the scaling. So for me, um, being under 
you know, a million dollar business, uh, you know, working as much as I can for small, medium sized companies and now getting larger contracts, I'm often asking, hey, do you guys have anyone? I'm looking for a professional coach myself, but then I'm saying, hey, do you have anyone that can help facilitate this process for us, help us with technology? And I've been grateful to find people along the way, like Dan Deegan, who can kind of facilitate things and, and help me kind of uh, grow with that. But for a lot of minority-owned or woman-owned businesses, we don't have the capital up front to, I mean, we've spent probably over five to $10,000 in the last two months just preparing our systems to be able to handle a tier one global company. And so now we're a supply, diverse supplier with them, but then there's also the other barriers of once you become a supplier, actually moving freight for them, right? All of these buzzwords, like you said, so Mike, I'm with you 100%. When they come out, there's some notable ones. And again, I won't mention names, but we all see them on LinkedIn. They're like, oh, first of all, it's very difficult for me when the chief diversity officer is not someone who's diverse. And then they're they're explaining to me about diversity and what their goals are, right? But when you meet with their team, you meet with their supply chain team, you meet with the whole team going down, there's no diversity. I see no women. There might be one woman and it's not a woman of color. And if it is, she's the only person and there's nothing else. So for me, I, I want more. I'm hoping that as things shift, um, that as things get moved beyond the Black Lives Matter and we're trying to show that Black Lives Matter, I want sustainable things that can be done uh, within our businesses, right? These um, like incubators, these hubs where we're able to grow and learn. I need to go, if I'm going to go from under a million dollar company to $10 million, I need additional skill sets, right? That's, I don't have anyone that I could just call, right? But My you circle- you need to be treated differently too, to be completely transparent. You need to be you yeah. need to be treated completely differently, right? And you, you can't need capital. You can't be treated like every other corporation that company X is doing business with, just because the chief procurement officer decided that that's what the policy is. That hey, right. every vendor that does business with company X is going to get paid in net ninety day terms. Guess what? A small minority owned beyond startup that's even at ten yes. million dollars in the annual revenue can't handle net 90 day payment terms. So unless you're gonna introduce them to an accounts payable factoring company or an incubator like Vita has, that's willing to back you from an incubator perspective, the odds of you getting your $10 million company to $100 million of sustainability so that you can actually get a table, a seat at that table where the big boys play at and the big girls play at, is the, the unfortunately the, the chips are stacked against you because even if they want to give you, it's like, it's like, yeah, I'd love to do $100 million worth of business with you, but I'm going to be out of business because I can't float the interest on the debt service of carrying $10 million a month on my books, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's tons of problems like that, or liability, or insurance, or termination, or all of those different things that come with conducting business in large corporate America. There has to be a different set of rules. And I was listening to Shelly Stewart talk about this at our conference from the Billion Dollar Roundtable. And it's like, listen, you got to create a different set of criteria by which you're going to work and, and, and know that what works in the United States market 
doesn't necessarily work in the European market, definitely doesn't work in the Asia PAC market because what's happening around the globe is completely different, right? So it's, it's, I hear a lot of people doing sound bites. There's a few people who are really trying to move the needle. Well, and put your money where your mouth is. So if you're going to invest exactly. money into a supplier and diversity program within your company, take some of that money and support the suppliers that you want to do business with and that you want to see scale. Because at the end of the day, one of the biggest issues that they're going to have is capital. And Zveta, I know you want to jump in here because you've been on the VC side and I'm sure you've seen a lot. So let's take a few more minutes to talk a little bit about how we create that meaningful change, not just box ticking. And then we'll get to the final question. Zveta? I think uh, before I jump into that, uh, there was just a point that I wanted to bring, uh, first of all, on the technology side. And of course, now we have the opportunity to fund innovation that really can uh, lower the barriers, uh, first of all, to entry and second of all, to scale. So, for example, a lot of trade finance solutions that we are seeing that uh, help smaller businesses um, grow uh, and expand. But I think uh, on your point about conferences, because I've, yeah, I've been on the VC side, but I've also uh, started out in VC uh, in a platform or ecosystem building role. So what I did do a lot of and still do uh, to this day with my side project is uh, events. So I have um, kind of understood how uh, difficult it is also to get um, diverse panel on board, and but it's not impossible, right? There is, uh, it's not. There is no such thing as you know. There's always uh, good enough speakers that you could reach out to, or if you have the desire to do that, you would always be able to hear from um, diverse set of uh, speakers. And I think also uh, as a uh, as a tip on tip uh, or advice for younger uh, listeners, perhaps uh, it would be, uh, yeah, title um, in some, unfortunately for a lot of people, titles do matter and there is not, not much that we can do, uh, even if we're talking about it, I think unless uh, there is a very um, affirmed desire and a recognized desire to change that, uh, we are very, um, we're not going to have too much success just speaking about it. But what I would say is that find what you're good at uh, and just profile into this specific niche or this specific area, because essentially what everyone wants to hear is value added, um, value added tips or value added advice. So it doesn't really matter if you have one year of experience or five years or 15 years, if you are the best at what you do, then people would want to hear uh, from you. And I think that's a very uh, good tip that perhaps younger people um, do not understand. They have to find what is their niche and just follow it. And I think another tip I would say is that perhaps also because of my own experiences, that there is um, nothing better than to um, build something that is tied, uh, that you have built yourself and that is tied to your own name. So I think that's another tip of advice, you know, whatever is it that you're working for, it, it could be another company, you could uh, very much uh, be involved in that and want to progress. But I think the best thing would be uh, that if you have a project that is really, you know, tied to your own name and nobody can take uh, away from you, for example. So I think that's something that young people should also uh, should also do while at university or while at high school. Uh, and we are seeing this age of creators, for example. So I think that's... Um, and that's also um, very good in order to take inspiration from them. But on the topic of, and I know that I've gone very, very much uh, away from your initial question. Do you want to ask me again? 
Yeah, I just wanted to know if you wanted to weigh in on the VC side and the funding side and how can, because we were talking about supplier diversity and how can we support the small business um, community to be able to be a strong supplier for some of these top companies that are looking to diverse, diversify their supplier base? So I cannot really say too much about the supplier base uh, because I don't have uh, too much experience on that side. But what I would say is that, uh, of course, um, there is a there is certain level of stats that we are all seeing and we are, we all know that for example even in supply chain because of many factors but um, the teams that uh, get um, you know raise funding are predominantly male dominated uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that one is because it's obviously the background expertise it's a, it is an industry that is dominated by men so if someone was to you know uh, find what is the pain point and go on to solve it with some sort of innovation there is just a bigger chance that this would be um, this would be a male led team it's not to say that female led teams don't exist of course but it's just less um, and how do we get access to them or how do we um, make sure that, for example, as a VC, you have a diversified uh, deal flow access in your pipeline is diverse. Well, first of all, it starts from who you have within your team as a VC firm, because you have to have uh, people that are investors that are with different types of background um, di diversity and that are different in background. They're different uh, obviously in gender, they have um, different even networks because if everyone is you know, white from uh, white male and from this type of business school, very naturally, you know, that's going to be your network and that's where your uh, opportunities to invest would come from. So we want to be, uh, uh, first of all, we want to be able to spot the outliers and we want to have uh, access to people who might think differently and those could be the people that would, um, you know, build these billion-dollar businesses. So I think, from one perspective, it's definitely having a diverse um, set uh, of people on the team. Uh, whether it's again uh, on the experience side, it's really important as well as um, just on the background perspective. But for women, I think that one of the biggest uh, challenges, for example, that I have seen is the way that even women pitch their businesses. So, uh, for example, if male-led male teams would be talking about the big opportunity. And that's, again, generalizing. So I don't really want to uh, generalize too broadly, but it is uh, this kind of confidence that is more developed, uh, perhaps with more experienced teams that by default, um, you know, the less networked founders, because they are not part of those um, very tight um, experienced entrepreneur networks uh, are women. So I think the first thing would be to, if, if it is on the mentorship side, it is to help on the pitching, it is on helping uh, on presenting the opportunity uh, and also to be able to, um, yeah, after you get uh, access to the investors, after you get to that first meeting, it is how do you make sure that you actually get to the you know next stages of the process. Um, and I think there are a lot of uh, different policies right now that VC firms are implementing that are, uh, for example, a lot of uh, ways that they're opening up, you know, even their emails are accessed everywhere online. Uh, to be fair, if you do uh, write targeted email, it doesn't, um, of course, it, um, it helps if you are referred by someone that um, is familiar uh, with with uh, with the investor, but it's not uh, it's not a it's not a necessity anymore. So I think it's just spending this time on developing other soft skills that is also important. 
Yeah. And, and we need to take a look at, at VCs in general. Okay. So wrapping up then I'd love for each of you to share one piece of advice for the rest of us that stands out from your own personal story. So what's the one piece of advice that, that you would bring to the table and want the audience to leave with today? Addie, I'm going to start with you. Oh my God. I have to think. <laughs> so, um, one piece of advice is that um, I'm going to go back to the beginning of this conversation on diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion only makes your company better. Diversity is not enough. Inclusion is very critical. Don't just get people there. Respect their voice. Listen to them. Try to ensure that they're not just sitting there without their voices not being heard. Thank you. Awesome. I love that. Devin, what about you? What's one thing from your personal story that you'd like people to walk away with today? I really had to think about this, but I think coming from more of that small business perspective and all the conversations that we've had where women are typically over mentored and under invested in. So my big piece of advice is to put your money put your money where your mouth is <laughs> and invest in um, diverse women, I guess. So that would be my, I guess, biggest piece of advice for right now. Yeah. And also maybe, you know, dig a little bit deeper and get to know the person and, and what they've overcome and how they've persevered. And that really talks to the level of resilience right? That each one of us brings to the table, whether that's speaking at a conference, whether that's a VC taking a look at taking a chance on, you know, an entrepreneur, you know, whether it's a company, a big company that wants to expand their supplier diversity program and wants to work with Shay and wants to put their money where their mouth is. I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying I'm here for it. <laughs> Exactly. Really understand um, who you're connecting with, what their values are, uh, what their background is, because if you don't have a really good understanding about who you're connecting with, then what's the what's point? The point? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it, Devin. Thank you, Mike. What would you like? What's one piece of advice you'd like people to walk away with? I think the one piece of advice that I would give to everybody who's listening is, is start. Just start. Start the conversation, start reaching out to other people. I mean, look at look at what we've been able to accomplish in the last two hours. I mean, we've been sitting here. I've, I've heard four amazing stories from four amazing women, completely different, different geographies, different backgrounds, different industries for the most part, right? Um, and I would love to continue the conversation with all of you. By the way, Sarah and I have huge clubhouse following. I'd love to have you all on clubhouse and talk inside of my rooms. I mean, just start the blessed conversation and you'll know whether or not you want to conduct business with these folks or invest in these folks or even be partnered with these folks, but start, don't, don't sit there and be like, ah, I'm going to let somebody else jump in first. Don't, don't wait for that, man. Just, just go for it. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. And I appreciate you for being here today. Veta, what is one piece of advice? I feel like I've done a lot of <laughs> talking today, um, but I think uh, keeping it brief um, would be to become aware. So if we all just uh, become aware of our own um, understandings or our own unconscious biases, I think that's a step in the right direction uh, that, would that would essentially go 
and progress to the people that we communicate with um, and then just make for a more meaningful change. So I think, yeah, uh, in order to make a positive change uh, take place, I think we have to we have to become aware of our own limitations. Awesome. Thank you. And last but absolutely not least, Shay Dixon, tell us what is the one piece of advice we should walk away from today with? Yes. Do not feel intimidated. Show up, own the room, the things that you don't know, learn them and go forth and do great things. We all have it inside of us. All of us just have to operate in it. Use any type of fear you have to fuel you. And once you've reached that final destination, turn around and create a pathway for other women, other minorities, other people coming behind you. Love, love, love it. Thank you so much to Devin, Shay, Mike, Veta, and Addie for joining me today. I'm really honored that you all shared your stories so openly with us, with the audience, with me today. And, you know, there's so much insight and inspiration to be taken from each one of your journeys. Those experiences that we have early on really do put us on a course for life. And I'm so proud of the work you're all doing now to help the next generations get on and stay on a really positive and prosperous path. Thanks again to our sponsors, Ships, Apex, and Mercado for helping to make this show happen. And don't forget to join us again next time for episode seven of Blended and more lively and important discussions around diversity and inclusion. Thank you all for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us together, Sarah. Thank you, Thank you for having us.